from VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. Zach, it's just you and me this week, man. Oh, it's nice to have uh, just a little intimate podcast. Yeah, I think it'll be good. Um, but though we miss Adam, of course. Yes. Of course, of Hurry course. Mm-hmm. Um, so you want to intro what we're going to be talking about? Sure. Well, I mean, I, I think that we ran a piece on the site uh, relatively recently mm-hmm. um, by Nicole Cleast. I hope I got her her name right, about sort of this question that's out there about three, in particular, three categories and maybe kind of more broad, in in a broader category, three specific examples within it of, you know, basically, is there any hope for fortified wines with Mm -hmm. younger consumers? And we've talked a lot about kind of millennials and and our drinking habits, Mm -hmm. especially as regards wine and sort of this, this category that had been really, really, really struggling. I mean, I think kind of categorically across uh, sherry and port, uh, vermouth to some extent, you know, basically those things you had seen, you know, diminished sales. You'd seen basically like the sherry industry largely being kept afloat by scotch, which wants just the, the <laughs> barrels, barrels and really care what happens to the, to the liquid inside them. Um, and all these things. And, you know, basically is there some, are there some signs of hope, some signs of life in younger consumers, maybe being intrigued by these categories. And so I thought it would be you know, kind of an interesting thing for us to talk about. Plus, you know, it gives us something to drink, um, which I always appreciate. Yes, yes. Hopefully you guys appreciate <laughs> it too. So actually, I, I want to start with this question for you, Joanna, and then we can maybe kind of talk a little more about this. Do you feel like you as have any interest as, in a drinker in any of this, uh, kind of anything in the fortified wine category? So as specific categories themselves, like, at, you know, the, t- the headline here says vermouth, sherry, and port, and we're drinking Madeira. I, I don't have any specific interest in, in any of them alone. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like, I'm not like, oh man, Sherry is so exciting to me. I want to know all about it. I want to really explore it. And I know that people do this, right? Like I, I, I know that for many years, there's been this argument that Sherry is, Sherry's going to happen, right? Like everybody in the industry, like Sherry, it's going to happen for the, you know, the greater drinking world. I don't think that's happened quite yet. But I do, I do like these, these wines included in other things. But I've, I've never had the impulse to explore any one of them on their own. So I, I'm curious if part of the challenge for all of these, well, let, let's say vermouth yeah. aside a little bit, because vermouth Please. has a sort of understood role as a you know cocktail ingredient, and it's obviously used widely in bars. Um, in a number of classic cocktails and kind of don't really need to go down that path. But when it comes to sherry and port uh, and the whole kind of quote unquote, what's well, not quote unquote, just the whole fortified wine category, I think it's that whole fortified thing right up the, off the jump that scares people away. I think when we think about fortified wine, you know, we think about either very, very low quality, you know, sort of things that people buy because it offers a high, you know, kind of amount of alcohol for a low dollar cost or and or there's a sense of like oh it's the wine has somehow been adulterated. I think people just don't know what it means. I think that's even at a more basic level like they just don't know what fortified wine means. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of the the challenge of the category faces. And it's something that I came across, you know, I've come across a lot as a as a wine director and as a sommelier and as just someone who who does find these categories you know, maybe stereotypically, I do find these categories interesting and and I find them to be appealing. And I think the other piece of this is that in addition to not knowing what sort of fortified means, you see this in particular with sherry and port is the sort of assumption that is at times 
pretty erroneous that all right. of it is sweet. I think port, that's actually a relatively safe mm-hmm. uh, assumption because part of the, the port like style and the process of making it is that you're using the, the, the liquid, you know, the liquor that you're fortifying with to stop fermentation midway through. So you're preserving some of the sugar that was mm-hmm. present in the grapes in the, you know, at harvest. Um, but with sherry, you're not, you know, you're, you're fortifying after fermentation. And so you're really using um, that to elevate the um, alcohol level to do things to the, to the wine. And then, you know, if it's a sweeter style, you're getting there, not through the residual sugar from the initial fermentation. And so I, I do find it to be, um, you know, yeah, misunderstood. But, but the other thing I was going to say, and I'm wondering if this element of it resonates at all with you, Joanna, and maybe resonates with, um, millennials more broadly is I do think that what's cool about these categories is they offer two things that might be appealing. One is that in part because of their long sales slump, they're actually generally Mm -hmm. very affordable. Um, I mean, Sherry in particular is kind of comically cheap in a lot of cases, uh, even for very high quality stuff. And it's also, they are, because of the fortification, they are, you know, they range, but they are, they're much more sort of shelf stable and suitable for a kind of occasional mm-hmm. drink than still wine or table wine. I agree with that, but I also just think another issue is that people don't really know when to drink them. And so, you know, sure, I'll have a bottle of sherry or have have a bottle of sherry on t- um, on hand, but like, what what are those occasions to drink it? Like, I I think that there's such old school beverages, right? Like. You see all these mid-century um, shows and they're having their sherry before dinner or, or, or after. I don't know, actually, and port after, right, because it's sweet. Or like when I was growing up, my parents would have a port after dinner occasionally. Um, but yeah, I just think in, in today's drinking culture, maybe until we we have restaurants who are offering sherry before a meal or port after a meal that people don't necessarily know when to drink these to have them at home on their own for sure and i think that that's that's obviously a challenge that comes with sort of uh in particular sherry but but even with um port well sherry and madeira actually which we'll talk about a little later um and is maybe a little less true with port that the style that you're looking at is going to have a very very different exactly case and a different kind of time Mm -hmm. you're going to want to consume it because they really run the gamut from extremely dry aperitif style um, or or wines that are suitable for pairing with certain kinds of food, uh, all the way to very sweet dessert style after dinner type drinks. And yeah, if you just say I want to try sherry, well, I mean, what are you even going to get? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I think the most interesting part of this piece is that their use, their respective use in cocktails, is what's bringing more people to them. I think there there's another part of this piece which is trying to make the argument that. People drinking more sherry and port in cocktails will make them wine drinkers, which I don't know that I agree with because they just seem so vastly different. I'm not going to have a cocktail with sherry in it and be like, oh, I really want uh, Pinot Noir now. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But... But I do think that it's interesting to see more bar operators and bartenders including these, these wines in their cocktails. Yeah, and I think that part of it too is that you, when we look at it from the side of like a restaurant or bar, incorporating these uh, wines into your bar program may allow you to keep them on hand for someone to have, you know, on their own. Right. You can you can stock them. You can you know keep them. You know, even though as I mentioned before, they they stay 
um, sort of viable as drinks, especially if refrigerated for longer than a, a, a table wine would. But they're still they still have a shelf life. You can't leave them open forever, mm-hmm. with the possible exception of Madeira. Again, we'll get to that. But what you can do is you can um, you can kind of you know use them in both sides, right? You can offer them in your regular wine program and also use them in cocktails in ways that maybe allow you to uh, offset the cost to some extent, uh, reduce spoilage or, or, you know, waste, and maybe also offer just a little bit more, um, you know, kind of a, a fresher experience for your guests than if you just have a dusty bottle of sherry, because every, you know, three weeks, someone orders one glass of sherry, which you know, mm-hmm. I've seen happen for sure. Um, I think the other piece of this, and I'd be very curious to know, because this is something that is talked about a lot in the with these uh, drinks. Like, does the history of it, it's whether it's the, the history of the production or its sort of relevance and importance in um, sort of just drinking history, does that matter? Do people care? Like, I, I find that stuff interesting, but I often with these things worry that I'm like one of eight people who gives a shit. Uh, yeah, I don't think people... <laughs> <Fair>. <laughs> Not to dismiss you. I don't think no, people no, no. really I, care, I honestly. I, I think that people only care as it relates to popular culture, if that makes sense. Like, so if they're, I, I've never seen Bridgerton. Is there sherry in Bridgerton? I have no idea. If there was, maybe people would care, (laughs) but, but that's kind of like, or I think about, um, what is it? Downton Abbey and, you know, drinking, this is like a personal one for me, like drinking brandy. Mm -hmm. I find that very compelling. So I'm like, well, I want brandy now. Um, but not because, but not because I necessarily care about, the history of of these or how they're really how they're made or how they be were popularized or anything like that i'm sure there are people who care about that though but i don't think it's leading to a wave of people who are drinking or more of these wines yeah i mean you know it'd be interesting to get into a little bit more about you know if we could know more about where these upticks and sales what it's really coming from and whether it's Mm -hmm. just kind of like a blip or whether it is you know, whether there are, even if it's not you, whether there are people who do, and, and is maybe less extreme than me, people who do find the history uh, compelling in some sense, do find some resonance. I mean, I think one thing that's also kind of uh, potentially appealing about some of these beverages is that they can convey an air of authenticity because they've become so unfashionable that like being into them can be kind of a thing. And also mm-hmm. maybe like <laughs> they, that they still exist. You You don't, like you know that the producers are not really chasing a market trend. Like they're they're still making their you know amontillado sherries or whatever the same way they have been because like that's just how it's done. Right. So you're not like worrying that oh now they're actually making it with you know uh, you know it's all wild yeast or they're or, or they're you know <laughs> um, using 100 percent new oak barrels because that's what's on trend for this year. Like you know it's it's the same as it ever was in some way. And while that can obviously work to these drinks detriment in some sense, maybe there's a way in which that sort of detached being detached from trends can actually it's forever unfashionable. Point. Yes. Yeah. I, yeah. And I think there is some, some appeal in liking something that's so uncool. Yeah. And, you know, I think lastly, before we get into tasting, I think on my end, at least the other thing that's, that's of course, a, both a challenge and an opportunity is, as I mentioned, the sort of diversity of the category and, but also the price. And, and one thing that I think we've talked about on the podcast in a different lens before, but that is actually very cool for some of this stuff, is that if you are the kind of person who maybe gets a little into wine and you find an appeal in sort of like, oh, I'm interested in 
finding old bottles. I want to, I want birth year stuff, you know, and you're, and you're, you know, some, whatever age you are, port, sherry to some extent, Madeira. These are areas where you can find vintage bottles, old mm-hmm. bottles, and they're not like cheap, but they are way more affordable than, uh, you know, most still wine from those eras would be. And again, because they're fortified, they are vastly more certain to be in good drinking condition than mm-hmm. still wine. Like they're more resilient. They can have been through slightly rougher treatment and just, they last longer. I mean, Madeira in particular lasts forever basically because of the combination of fortification and in Madeira's case, the production methodology. And like, that's a cool thing. And and for someone who is like kind of interested in dipping their toe into that, it can be a, a more, uh, a safer and less kind of fraught way to get into older bottles both that's safer both from a experience and also a price standpoint. Mm-hmm. I, I think also, you know, to your earlier point, I think a lot of the places where we're seeing more of these wines in cocktails are the places that have more robust wine programs. And so it's like you already have people there who are interested in that and, and know that that's the offering. And so they're probably more willing to try things like that and like you said if you're if you're somebody who's very curious about wine or interested in it then then you're going to be more open to exploring these um than maybe somebody who's who's not necessarily a wine person all right we should drink something so so what are we drinking (laughs) what are you drinking so i have um a madeira from uh the rare wine coast historic series um, which i think are really great kind of examples of the style and so not to get into a whole thing about madeira um i don't (laughs) know has there been a uh, wine 101 about madeira yet i should probably know this uh, nope. Before I begin, nope. Okay, well, Keith, you can put it on the list. For Fortified season. wines, but not put it on Madeira the list for specifically. Fifteen. Uh, when you <laughs> um, but it's one of the things about end. Madeira is you have sort of these four noble varieties: uh, right. Cercial, Verdello, Boal, and uh, Malvasia, and they kind of in that order go from drier to sweeter. So this is kind of the slightly off dry, like it's uh, not nearly as sweet as a as a Boal or a. Um, Sorry, Malvasia which one is it? Be. Sorry, I have the Verdello. Uh, okay. Verdello rather um, i always want to say it like it's spanish and it's actually portuguese portuguese um, <laughs> and this is also they call this savannah because uh, rare wine code named all their different bottlings in this series uh from kind of famous Amer- cities that were hugely important in the madeira trade in the u.s in the early days of said madeira trade which was uh like you know around the time of the colonies i guess so um yeah so i have that what do you have i have miles five-year-old madeira tinta negra which is not one of as i understand it not one of the noble no, it's the commoner. <laughs> right. It's the commoner. It's the commoner. Um, and this is the medium dry. Is that right? Sounds like a thing to me. Keith is looking at my bottle. <laughs> um, well, you should tell me what you think because I'm familiar with this wine. I, I think this is delicious. I really like it. I don't. I don't know. I said this to you earlier, Zach. I don't know a ton about Madeira. I don't have obviously. I don't have a ton of experience drinking it, but I think this is supposed to be medium dry. It's pretty sweet. So I'd be interested in trying something drier just out of curiosity to taste them side by side yeah mm-hmm. well i mean i think one of the critical things in understanding madeira is understanding the production method and i'm not, again, not going to get deep into this but basically the wine is both like oxidized and heated uh, mm-hmm. and you know madeira really was kind of born out of these uh, uh fortified wines being placed in the holds of ships uh during the sort of age of exploration and and you know sort of the transatlantic trade and all that and between the sort of oxidative environment of just barrels and stuff and being out in the elements for a while and the heating and cooling that came with, you know, being out on the ocean and sometimes traveling, you know, to tropical climates or whatever, you basically found that they found that these 
varieties in particular in this style, um, as opposed to most wine, which would be really kind of ruined by that and just, you know, essentially mm-hmm. undrinkable, um, kind of actually brought out this very interesting uh, style of wine that retains some of the the characteristic of the varieties while also being very distinctly Madeira. So it, it has a kind of pronounced nuttiness um, that comes from the oxidation. There's kind of a, a roundness to it that comes from the sort of heating element and, and the, mm-hmm. of course, the fortification of uh, of the wine with a, a neutral spirit. But yeah, the the cerciales, the really dry styles, can be you know reminiscent of sherry in of dry sherry, and they're kind of like salinity and sort of very very acidic and dry impression, but with this added sort of you know cooked element, frankly. Mm-hmm. And the sweet styles are very very luxurious and very kind of um, you know unctuous and and um, really coats the palate. Yeah, they're not as like fully. Mouth coating is like I would say like a really like a, like a PX sherry would be or mm-hmm. um, a really really kind of rich port, but they have a similar characteristic to them. Um, but again, kind of leaning much more into those cooked flavors. They're very like kind of like like you sometimes hear talk about like you know like like toffee pudding and stuff like that. Yeah, I would. I mean, I'd love to play with this in cocktails and and yeah. see. Um, I think it would be really delicious. Um, but yeah, I thought. This is interesting. I, I'm really curious to see how this plays out, like across cocktail menus in in New York City, but you know, across the country as well. Yeah, for sure. And I think you know it would be interesting to hear again from listeners, uh, podcastifinepair.com. If you guys have thoughts, obviously many of you are are in the industry and may dearly love these uh, these drinks, these wines, and, and obviously let us know what you think. But I'd be more curious in some ways if you're people who are have not tried these or are skeptical uh, mm-hmm. if there is some some space for you if you're interested in trying them or you're just unfamiliar you may not be skeptical you're just unfamiliar mm-hmm. because those you're the people that these producers that these regions are trying to reach in some way uh and i'd be curious to know if you have uh any sort of openness or thoughts on how they might do that yeah well zach thank you so much and i'll uh, talk to you next week sounds great Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also... I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.